0: Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, we'll be looking at Jefferson's letters. As we, we started in the last episode, looking at Jefferson let, Jefferson's letters from 1760 to 1785. These letters will cover a much uh, shorter period of time, uh, but there's a lot of them and there's a lot of interesting uh, letters I want to highlight uh, for you and a lot of things I, I learned about Thomas Jefferson um, and some of his contacts and some of the people he was, he was communicating with. Uh, so these are, uh, the, you know, some of these letters I, I've read before, at least I, I, there's quotes of Jefferson that I knew uh, that I didn't know from these letters, or I didn't quite place them, especially around surrounding the Constitution. Okay, these letters all come from 1786 to 1789, uh, and basically this covers his years in Paris. We talked a little bit about his arrival in Paris at, in 1785, but really it's these these four years that, uh, before he's called back to Washington, well, I guess it wouldn't have been Washington, then called back to the Capitol to be Washington's Secretary of State. Um, so I'm not going to give too much of a detail in his life during this period. Um, I will just say that in, in 1786, that's when he meets uh, Maria Cosway. Maria Cosway is, you know, if you read his letters, it's, it's almost like she's a He's flirting with her quite a lot, uh, to say the least, uh, throughout his time in France. Um, So she's kind of a a romantic interest. She's one of two, right? So she, you know, it's also this is the period of time when when he starts having a sexual relationship with with Sally Hemings. It wouldn't be right to call that romantic, but it it is a part of Jefferson's post-marital sex life, anyways. Um, Maria Causeway is just more of a kind of a a epistolatory flirtation. At least that's the image we get from these. His documents. Um, it's in 1786 that he sends for Polly, his other daughter, to to come to France and that's when Sally arrives. So in 1787 Polly and Sally Hemings arrive in Paris and that's the same time he sees the Constitution so he's able to begin to comment on the Constitution. We'll get into his details about the details about his opinion about the Constitution. Um, he, he's, he's got mixed feelings about it to say the least. In 1788 Jefferson visits Paris uh, he gets a doctorate from Harvard at this at this time, kinda of, I think it's an honorary one. Uh, and then in seventeen eighty nine he witnesses the Estates General and he sees the beginning of the revolution in France. And it's at that time that he returns to the United States, returns to Monticello and gets uh, recalled to the government to be Secretary of State. Um so basically he's doing his diplomatic work in 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 Paris, and then he does some in Germany, and I think he does work with Prussia to get some kind of trade deal signed or something. Um, but that's what happens in his life in those years. So it's, it's a relatively short period of time, but there's a lot of interesting letters from this, this period. Now, he's going to see the Constitution in 1787 and give his comments on it, but I will say that his letters show that he still has a lot of faith in the Confederacy, and he doesn't really see an urgent need to overturn it. He writes in a letter to Archibald Stewart um in early 1786 where he writes our confederacy must be viewed as a nest from which all america north and south is to be peopled we should take care not to think that the interests of that great continent depressed too soon on the spaniards those countries cannot be in better hands my fear is that they're too feeble to hold them till our population can be sufficiently advanced to gain them piece by piece the navigation of the mississippi we must have so a couple of things there. One is just this idea that there is a basic unity in these, uh, in this, in this, in the Articles of Confederation in these states, and it's, it's a powerful one. And he's talking about the. He basically sees an empire in the West already, and I think uh, for right now it's just after the Mississippi. That of course will be the justification for buying the Louisiana. It will be the New Orleans. That's what he. Well, he's really after and he ends up getting all of Louisiana alongside of it, but he's actually talking here about that the pressure of population from the United States is going to eventually displace Spanish holdings here. So he's confident that the that, uh, Articles of Confederation could be a binding document for uh, an empire even, not just for uh, a republic. We already know that Jefferson has a lot of interest in, in architecture. He built Monticello, or at least he planned it, and we, we saw how he started planning the University of Virginia. So we're not surprised to see a document like this letter to William Buchanan and James Hay, where he really talks about building of Virginia into with Republican monuments. He, he, he talks about the future of Virginia being essentially something comparable to ancient Rome. He said... It is to be the most perfect and precious remains of antiquity in existence. It's superior over anything in Rome or Greece or Balbic or Palermo is allowed on all hands. And this single object has placed Nismes on the general tour of, of travelers. Well, he's here, he's talking about, the, about France being this center of that. But he thinks that this can be brought to the Americas as well. And he talks about the different architectural projects that will go on in building uh, kind of the, the new republic in Virginia. He, he also, though, adds here the need to build a prison, um, and I find it interesting that he's getting the idea of prisons from the French, talking to the French, um, and he's sending a plan of a prison proposed at Lyon to the Americans. At the same time, Tocqueville will, of course, come to America, and before writing Democracy in America, he's going to—he goes there originally to study prisons, right democracy in America is like an afterthought of his main journey to, to the United States, was to learn about American prisons. So the fact that there's this kind of transatlantic dialogue about prisons is, is certainly very interesting. And, and that's one of those new institutions, those institutions that has come relatively recently in human history, and of course, has been very important to our, our, our society, one of the central coercive institutions in the modern world. And it's fairly new, and we, we can see the origins of it going not that far back. Um, now, there's a lot of documents here that, that express his interest and his attitudes about, about education. Um, for instance, um, where is it? Uh, George Wythe, he wrote, uh, who was a Virginia judge, he wrote about the need to establish like public libraries in the, in the crusade against ignorance that uh, Americans had to get involved with. And then, very interestingly, he writes to Thomas Mann Randolph. Thomas Mann Randolph is the basically the, the woman or the man who's going to marry Martha Jefferson, his his eldest daughter, and so he's carrying on a conversation with Randolph through these letters. And he's still young, so he's actually giving him advice on how to become educated and what to learn. And he actually at one point tells him like, "Don't take too many classes, especially in certain fields. You don't need those classes; just need books." And he says that so often in his letters that I think he he really took this seriously that. In a lot of things, you just didn't need to go to class. You didn't need lectures. You didn't need to have it recited to you. You just needed books. And this is something I think a lot about as someone who teaches and, and often has to teach in kind of lecture format. Um, as much as I try not to do that here in China, the students expect that and, and they're almost hostile if you don't do that. They, they don't, you know, they're not used to other ways. But the point being, like, lecture is essentially an oral tradition and we're back to oral. Um, communication, right? That's how people taught and, and learned things, you know, before, were, before writing, before printing, right? When writing was still expensive, you know, and the Greeks, they had to just listen to the philosopher speak and they had to write it down on their papyrus or whatever, right? Of course, I think in the Paleolithic, education was probably more hands-on than anything like that, but it's still kind of oral, right? And once you have writing, it, especially printing, it's a bit obsolete to have a lecture. Right, the only reason you needed lectures and everyone copying it because you could have twenty students copy what the professor said, and that was the only way to make it affordable because there weren't books for everyone. Once you have cheap books, all you need are the books, right? And uh, it's a technology of communication that's more efficient than the lecture. Actually, right, you can read more in an hour than you can get out of a lecture usually. So um, I'm kind of with Jefferson on that, even though I, I realize that we're kind of still stuck in this kind of teacher in front of a big class of of students kind of model um so anyways there's a lot here about education he talks about the education of martha of of his of his son-in-law and he very once in a while gets it you know i think he's responding to requests for advice on how to learn certain topics and he's always very generous in his advice and then often comes down to just get the books just read what you need there's one document here, which is a letter to John Page, uh, also also 1786, where he, he responds to something he was when he wrote. Um, we looked at it in a previous episode where Jefferson wrote these, this kind of trolling letter to the newspapers in Britain, basically criticizing them for having all this bad press about America. And he he responds to this, basically saying that they, the British seem to hate the Americans. And um, quote they this is quoting the letter. I've seen and heard in England, the nation hates us, their ministers hate us, and the king more than all of their men. They have the impudence to avow this, so they acknowledge our our trade important to them. But they cannot say we prevent our countrymen from bringing that unto their laps. A conviction of this determination that determines them to make no terms of commerce with us. They say they will pocket our carrying trade as well as their own." couple of things here. One is there seems to be this ongoing resentment towards the United States in Britain, which we can understand. But also Jefferson early on is kind of, let's not deal with Britain, let's deal with France. And even when France was still a monarchy, he seems to have this pro-French attitude. And this is going to, of course, be core to his sec- time as Secretary of State and the heart of the conflict. Part of the heart of the conflict between Hamilton and and Jefferson during those years. And, and we'll get to that in the next episode when we um, when you know we look we don't got that many letters from that period of time but there's a lot going on in jefferson's life obviously from from 1792 to 1800 that'll be the next episode where we'll get more into that but um i I think maybe because he's more public in that he's he's not so talking in in his in his letters as he is here he's very very talking in these letters in while he's in france he's very very bold he's saying pretty radical stuff actually um Now, something that struck out to me was his letter to Ezra Stiles, uh, September 1786, where he mentions uh, uh, Leedyard. Now, Leedyard was an American kind of explorer and uh, seaman who, who traveled with Cook. He was on Cook's third voyage, right? And one of the things he reported back was the importance of the Seattle fur trade and Jefferson knew about this, Washington knew about this, and I think Ledyard actually wrote to Washington during the presidency saying we need to get involved in this, and eventually the United States would very early on get involved in this theater for trade in the North Pacific. This would be key to the American-China trade early on. This is actually what I I wrote about um, a few years ago. So here's what he says to Ezra Stiles. A countryman of yours, a Mr. Ledyard, who was with Captain Cook on his last voyage, proposes either to go to... Kamchatka, cross from thence to the western side of America and penetrate through the continent to our side of it, or to go to Kentucky and thence penetrate westerly to the South Sea. The vent from hence lately to London, where he finds a passage to Kamchatka or the western coast of America, he would avail of it. Otherwise, he proposes to return to our side of America and attempt that route. Quote. So he's, he's basically trying to have some kind of expedition exp- that takes you from America, from the United States, I should say, to Russia. Um, and part of that's really the fur trade. The fur trade is on his mind, obviously. He doesn't mention it here, but that's obviously part of what he's thinking about. Now, later on, John Jacob Astor, when he sets up Astoria on the coast of Oregon, that's going to be the idea, too, is to connect in the continental America with the Pacific marketplace. And it's just a little passage here, but I think there's a larger significance to be had about um, lead yard um, and kind of the school of the West, and again, I, I think Jefferson comes off increasingly in these letters, the more I read them, as an empire builder, and I, and I think, yeah, yeah, he's a staunch Republican, and he has those values, but at the same time, underneath it all is is kind of a, a mission of empire, and Louisiana is not just an accident of the purchase of New Orleans; it's it's a much deeper vision that Jefferson had for this this. Republic expanding and and it's not just like the agrarian ideal. It's there's other concerns here Such as kind of the Pacific market and and kind of having an American presence there um, All right, um, well the Murray Causeway letters. They're so fun. They're nice One of these is a very very long one. I'm not going to say too much about it, but it's fun to read. It's um, October 1786. It's a dialogue between my heart and my head. And it's a very Emotional and, and self-reflective and thoughtful letter and he never writes this way to, to other people. It's, it's only to Maria Causeway that he's kind of exposing his his heart so openly to her. Although he still presents it as a dialogue between the heart and the head. But um, we see a side of Jefferson that you don't normally see. Um, quote, To quote one part of it, and what more sublime delight than to mingle tears with one the hand of heaven has smitten, to watch over the bed of sickness and to beguile its tedious and its painful moments, to share a bed with one whom misfortune has left none. This world abounds indeed with misery. To lighten its burden, we must divide it with another. But let us now try the virtues of your mathematical balance. As you have put into one skill the burden of friendship, let me put its comfort into the other. Quote, really nice, really. touching sentiments there about the necessity of friendship and it seems to me there's definitely something more there than straight-up friendship there is a a romance she's married but uh, and he's of course a widower but there's something there and I I think I I don't feel bad kind of inflating that relationship into something more we don't have many letters from Jefferson in this collection at least that display that side of him now, I will mention that he's writing uh, crevecoeur at this time. His full name, let me get it for you. Saint John de Crevecoeur. I think he's got some other um, things in there. He, he, he's, a, he's originally French. He, he became an American. And his most famous work is Letters from an American Farmer. And it's really wonderful. And it asks that age-old question, what is an American? And he, he provides one of the earliest good answers to that, that question. It's, it's a really wonderful essay. And what he writes about um, slavery and and, and empathy, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And yeah, if you haven't read that, it should. And I, I would like to see the Library of America come up with a collection of Kravacore's writing. I don't know if there's enough to fill one of these books, but if there is, I, I think he's definitely worthy of one. Um, so let me jump into, the during the, the constitutional debate, which begins in the letters of 1787. He writes a lot to Madison. He writes to... Mostly, I think a lot of these come to Madison, but he writes some other people too, um, where he discusses his feelings about the Constitution, his criticism of it. Um, And he does two things. On the one hand, he's arguing the need for rebellion. So he's not opposed to this idea of just throwing out the old government and creating something new because he definitely thinks there's a space for, for essentially revolt. And, of course, he's in France at a time when there's a growing conversation about revolution. Maybe not, I, don't, you know, I don't quite know when it was kind of in the air, but definitely from these letters you get the sense that it's before the states General's call. called. There's, there's kind of something bubbling under the surface, and Jefferson's very much keyed into that. Um, but he seems to be the opinion that there, there needs to be rebellion from time to time. He says about re- rebellion, it prevents the degeneracy of government and nourishes a general attention to public affairs. I hold that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and is necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. Unsuccessful rebellions indeed generally establish the encroachments on the rights of the people who have produced them. An observation that this too should render honest Republican governors so mild in their punishment of rebellions as not to discourage them too much. End quote. I mean, that's that's almost. that's, I mean, it's interesting. It's almost like a pro-government attitude towards rebellion, saying government should let rebellions be because it it kind of pushes them in the, in the direction of more effectiveness, uh, even if they even if they fail. Uh, I don't know what the the logical conclusion of that is. Is you know they just uh, allow every rebellion to succeed? I I'm not quite sure what he's saying, but he he definitely thinks rebellion is necessary from time to time to kind of correct imbalances in the system or to, or to allow each generation to make a decision for themselves. And one of these letters he says straight up that the people of today should not be slaves to the ancestors. The same kind of language Tom Paine uses in Rights of Man and even in Common Sense that we're not obliged to honor deals made in the 13th century, you know, or, or something nonsense like that. You know, we are our own people. And just because a constitution was created at one point doesn't mean it's written in stone, right? And again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we should get rid of the constitution. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be willing to get rid of it for anything less than, you know, socialism. But um, because I don't know what the alternative would be and a constitutional convention would be a, you know, a mess in the current political environment. Um, but, you know, I, I appreciate what Jefferson's saying here about the, the need to change. Um, and I guess I will give some credit to the framers of the Constitution in that they at least made it f- have the potential to change. It's a conservative document, don't get me wrong, but there is space for evolution. And it has essentially been rewritten two, two times in, in American history, once after the Civil War and once in the Progressive Era, and to a lesser degree in the in the 60s. Those waves of amendments. Um, so. Of course, he's writing to Madison in a lot of these letters where he's talking about the Constitution. And, of course, Madison's the primary author of the Constitution. Um, I wonder if Jefferson knew that at the time. Um, but he's got criticisms. His main criticism is in what the Constitution does not provide, right? It doesn't provide the Bill of Rights. So this is classic kind of anti-federalist case that the Constitution didn't do enough to really clarify and enumerate rights. And So the debate, if you remember from your US history class, was the idea that these rights are implied, which was kind of the Hamiltonian defense of of this, that these rights exist. They are essentially there even if it's not stated. Um, And then you got the the anti-federalists who said, no, these have to be enumerated. And of course, the compromise was putting them into the Constitution. as the first 10 amendments, and of course, the first Congress uh, did that. So, a lot of these are going to play with that, and they deal with, uh, but a lot of them also come back to the need for rebellion. So, Jefferson's supporting this new constitution more or less with some um, pro- provisions. Even in one time, he says, We need a strategy for ratifying this. Like, we need maybe to get like all but one state to ratify. All, like, I think they needed eight, right? So, get seven states to ratify it, and then have the last one hold out until. They, they they make those changes. They make those promises. Then will then the rest can ratify it or something or you know have some kind of or even if have enough to make it law. But then have a few hold out and then in, in the interest of getting them to support it, they would add these enumerated rights that he he wanted. Um, so yeah, that's that's what's going on. There's one other passage here, which is of course very very famous if you know anything about Jefferson's comments on revolution. And I'll just read it to you. It's in a letter to William S. Smith uh, from Paris, uh, November 13, 1787. Um, Quote, there has been one rebellion. That comes to one rebellion in a century and a half for each state. What country has ever existed a century and a half without a rebellion? And what country can preserve its liberties if their rulers are not warned from time to time that the people preserve the spirit of resistance? Let them take arms. The remedy is to set them right as to facts. Pardon and pacify them. What signifies a few lives lost in a century or two? The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural manure. Our convention has been too much impressed by the insurrection of Massachusetts and in the spur of the moment they are setting up a kite to keep the henyard in order. I hope in God this article will be rectified before the new constitution is accepted. End quote. Um, another letter to Adams on the Constitution with the same kind of stuff. So a lot of that is in here, and this is the, that's, that's the place you'll go. It's, it's probably about 40 pages of this book dealing with the letters mostly about the Constitution. Um, for those of you interested in Jefferson's scientific pursuits, he's, of course, in a center of science in 18th, late 18th century France. Um, and he does uh, write a letter to Buffon. Buffon, of course, a famous French naturalist. And the letter is it's so fascinating. They actually sent moose bones to, as part of a kind of scientific exchange with France. So they had to, like, ship, package up and ship these moose bones because that's, that's a new world animal that Buffon never saw. So, um, and so the letter is his introduction to this kind of shipment of, of, of moose. And I think there's some other bones there, too. It's great. You can imagine maybe Buffon, Buffon being so excited by opening this package of all these all these bones of, of animals he have not seen before. Um, quite quite nice little letter. All right, moving on. Um, he's got one really important letter to George Washington on commerce, which kind of prefigures some of the stuff he'll be writing in the Secretary of State. Uh, this was December fourth, seventeen eighty-eight, um, and. I don't quite know when Washington actually became president. It's just dated, sir. I don't think I don't think they had the naming down for for that yet. Um, but this is a, a diplomatic letter. on On this, um, he's got some really opti- He's got some optimism here um, about the future of U.S. production, saying the products of the U.S. will soon exceed the European demand. What is to be done with the surplus, and where sh- what shall it be? It will be employed without question to open by force a market for itself will be placed in the same continent with us and who wished nothing better quote so he's seen kind of a again a continental or hemispheric empire because of the need to to sell export american goods uh, he's thinking mostly agriculture he's he's against an industrialization of of the united states um he also here recommends an opposite approach from great britain right uh basically low tariffs and, and and you know that's going to prefigure some of the conflicts with hamilton too that said though uh jefferson would eventually advocate high tariffs on britain as retaliation for uh, british tariffs but overall he's, he's got kind of the free trade export uh those raw materials kind of uh model uh as opposed to the protectionism advocated by by hamilton um Then we get to documents that speak to the French Revolution. And I think, you know, there's not too much to say except that he's seeing this and he's observing it and he's quite hopeful and and optimistic about what the French Revolution will bring to to the world. He sees it as a world-changing event, to be sure. In one very fascinating uh, letter dated June 3rd, 1789 to Robot de saint otien which basically includes Jefferson's effort to write a, a quote unquote, Charter, Charter of Rights for France. Now, France is going to have its own Declaration of Rights of Man, which will be produced by the National Assembly. Uh, this is before any of that, um, before the National Assembly is established. But you know, Jefferson here, is, he maybe being a bit presumptuous, but he, he's, he's humble. He says, like, this is just a very quick effort of, of kind of what a Bill of Rights for France might look like. Um, what are some of these things he got? Uh, so he sees the states general as being kind of the, the legislature of, of France. Uh, the states general alone shall, shall levy money on the nation and shall appropriate. Law shall be made by the states general only with the consent of the king. No person shall be restrained of his liberty but regular process of the court of law. Due process of law. Um, the military should be subordinate to civil civil authority. That's, that's an American ideal. That would have been very foreign in in Europe at the time, but of course, is more commonplace now. Um, this is this is in the era of false news. Here we got printers shall be liable to legal prosecution for printing and publishing fake facts, interest to the party prosecuting, but they shall be under no other restraints. So basically, freedom of the press, but liable laws would be intact. Uh, the usurpation of the debts of the nation, um, of the king, the king's debts by the nation. That that makes sense. So uh, he tries. It's like his little it's his little contribution to French Revolutionary history, I suppose. Nothing as impressive as what Tom Paine would do, but there it is. Um, and then just one more letter I, I'll, I'll throw out there, and that is his letter to James Madison, where he makes the claim that the earth shall belong to the living. The dead shall have no power, no rights over it. And that's the direct quote from the the... The letter Um, later on he says what is true of a generation all arriving to self-government on the same day and dying on the same day is true of those on a constant course of decay and renewal with this only difference a generation coming in and going out entirely as in the first case would have the right on the first year of their self-domination to contract a debt of 33 years in the 10th for 24 in the 20th and 14 and 30th and four whereas generations changing daily by daily Deaths and births have one constant term beginning on the date of their contract and ending when the majority of those are of full of age that, of that date shall die. End quote. I mean, it's a very complicated question, and I know it's a bit uh, confusing there, but what he's essentially saying is if everyone in a generation was born and died, you can imagine them making a contract, establishing debts, paying off those debts, and then dying at some point, and that's the end of it, right? But we don't live in that world, right? We always have new people being born and inheriting debt, inheriting societies, inheriting, um, you know, whatever came before, whether it's government. Now, what do you do in that case? Like, you know, in a case like the United States, where you might have boomers who support kind of one political position and young people who maybe have a very radically different political imagination, right, For the, to give the young people to make their vision manifest may seem just it may seem better for the future but at the same time it is oppressive to the older generation who have already kind of consented to a type of society they want um and this is not workable obviously to to say like we kind of phase out these things as these people die and you know like as soon as the last person dies that debt you know is gone i mean so i guess when the last world war ii generation person dies he's saying the debts of world war ii are kind of forgiven or something it's it's not really workable here that said it's such an important thing to keep in mind is that we're not we shouldn't be slaves to ideas that come from before our time right to tradition to um, even something as as something like the constitution or even jefferson's own declaration of independence these things are not uh, they're not shackles that bind us they're they're things we can build off of and change and 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 throw it and, and replace if if that's what we feel is best for us. Yeah, it's dangerous, and again, I wouldn't recommend doing that today, but just because of the way the political environment is in this country, but, uh, the U.S. Constitution may be better than anything, any alternative that could be produced now, but um, at least in the political context uh, that we're in. But uh, still, this, it doesn't mean I don't agree with him here that, that yes, government belongs to the living, not to, not to the dead. I just don't know how to make a, a kind of a workable model for envisioning that, except maybe giving more young people the right to vote, maybe a start in that direction. So anyways, um, that's a kind of a sampling of, of the letters Jefferson wrote while he was in Paris uh, and in Europe in general. So in the next episode, I'll be looking at the letters Jefferson wrote in 1790 and 17- to 1799. Uh there's only It's only 100 pages, uh, and that's about a decade of his life. Um, now, of course, he's very public in these years. He's for a while. He's Secretary of State. He retires for a while, goes back to Monticello. Then he becomes Vice President, um, of course, under Adams, because oh, in those days you didn't have running Mates, right? Whoever got second place became Vice President, and that was Jefferson. So he was Vice President under Adams for a while and I'm fairly silent, um, but until he started working against his own administration, right, I mean, with his, you know, the Kentucky resolutions and his growing kind of opposition to um, to kind of what he saw as a monarch- monarchical t- tendency. So p- part of these, he's kind of silent and, and kind of doing his job as Secretary of State, but in the second half, by the mid-1790s, he's talking more and more about, and especially in his, some of his private letters, about the monarchy, about the monarchists and his fears of the Federalists. And so we'll talk about all of, of that. And we'll also talk about what, you know, go into some more detail about Jefferson's life in those, those years. Sally Hemings has a lot of children and in those years, I think three or four. His first, her first child, she actually had gave birth to a child in France, who, and that child died not long after his return. So we'll, we'll also say a little bit more about his relationship with, with Sally Hemings, uh, although there's very little in the letters, nothing in the letters, actually, about, about the Hemings. But how does Jefferson balance his opposition to the Federalist while being part of the Federalist administration, first as Secretary of State and then as Vice President? That's the question we're really going to have to take up next time. So anyways, in the meantime, let me know what you think of these letters. If you read them, what, what about his ideas about revolution or, or the idea that government belongs to the living? I mean, how do we make that workable? If you have any thoughts about any of this, please leave your thoughts below or send me an email at 100 gmail at gmail.com. And I'll see you next time and we'll we'll finish up with Jefferson's eighteenth century oh, letters. Of <laughs>